Hello and welcome everybody. SF Live Expert Monday. This is episode 132. And in a few short seconds, I'll be joined by Nicole Edsett Bell. She's an absolute expert in the field. She calls herself a jack of all trades. And we're really excited to have that conversation with her today because we're going to talk about not always like mining is not always bad. Like what's happening in the mining sector is actually good. How can we extract value from our sector? What should we do and what should companies do to add value? I think that's going to be a very valuable conversation with Nikki here in a few short seconds. But before we switch over, make sure to follow us on YouTube, follow us on Twitter, hit that like and subscribe button. Really important to us to see that because I know 80% of our viewers are not subscribers. Let's change that ratio and uh, make sure to comment as well. What do you think of the conversation? What do you think of Nikki? What, what do you think of her views? We want to hear from you. Let's make this an active discussion and talking about active. This is an interactive format. Make sure to use hashtag ask Nicole for your questions on Twitter. Use the YouTube chat function as well. We'll be looking in there periodically during our conversation with Nikki and see if we can sprinkle some of your questions into the conversation as well. Now, enough of me. Let's switch over to Nicole. Hi, <laughs> Nikki, great to have you on. How, how are you today? I'm very well. Thank you very much for having me on. Uh, and I will just make one comment. If people are going to make comments on the interview, they can only do so if they're not nice i get hurt feelings very easily <laughs> <laughs> fantastic let's let's give a little more background on yourself before we dive in like you haven't done it i youtubed you not google i youtubed you uh, and i've seen you've done an imark presentation or conversation two months ago but i haven't seen too much recent yeah. so let, let's start with who you are i've known I, i've known you for a while now so i'm really happy about that but uh let, let's paint a picture like who, who's nicolette's at bell and what does coupel advisory do Sure. Well, I'm a geologist originally, um, obviously probably by the accent everyone can tell, born and educated in Australia, moved to Canada in 2001 and worked as a geo, then turned to the dark side, according to my geology peers in 2003, uh, to the financial side, actually, to the buy side. So really got a very good understanding of what happens in markets going from the extremes of a bear market through to the beginnings of a bull market whilst on the buy side, then moved to the sell side, kind of a crazy move because I gave up the fake love on the buy side to to become an analyst covering base metals and uranium and that was it was really at the beginning of the global cycle in all commodities and so I felt like a genius because everything I covered went up and then I had enough humility to realize that I actually wasn't it was the market rising tide floats all boats and I did that for a number of years and then felt like uranium was a bubble in hindsight resigned at the top in 2000 and seven and perhaps went to the darker side of all, became an investment banker for four years at Hayward, where he really focused on lots of MA and did some pretty sizable transactions, the gamut of uh, equity and quasi-equity deals. We did streaming in the very nascent stages of streaming, uh, advised on that, advised on divestures, combinations, all of those, um, the whole sweep of MA. And then I ended up going back to the buy side and uh, for four years and then left that, started uh, my own firm, uh, which is Capel Advisor. And really what Capel's focused is, is taking this, this quite large variety, I suppose, of experience that I've accumulated over the last 25 years. And it's really focused on how do you extract value on the sector? And this is a pretty complex business. 
there's the technical aspects that are very complex. We've obviously seen ESG. That side of it has become more and more complex, the people side. So it's, it's, it's how do you de-risk the decision-making process in a really complex business? And then kind of in between that, I have um, developed a, quite a bit of board experience. So I've sat on a number of boards from early-stage development companies to large multi-asset producers and uh, one of the boards that I was an executive director and I ended up running that company because it, uh, it ended up being in quite strong financial difficulties. The CEO at the time really probably didn't want to, to invest the commitment that really needed to be invested to, to fix the company. And so I stepped up to the plate and I was an ASX listed gold producer with a large open pit gold mine in Brazil. And suffice to say, in very difficult circumstances, and it's really due to the quality and the superb skills of the in-country Brazilian team, we got the asset working and we sold it to a Canadian company. And that's my career in a nutshell. In a nutshell, so I love it because it's super extensive and you really touched on every, like you've really got everything covered, right? Like that's the dream career you've done everything in mining what was your favorite job oh uh investment banking to some degree was the simplest because a transaction happened or it didn't so there was always an end whereas if you're in research or if you're uh whether it's on the sell side or whether it's on the buy side there's almost there's always more you can be doing so if you're longer name there's always more to know there's always more people to talk to there's always more technical information to read so you always feel like you should be doing more and for me to some degree the simplest uh, was the M&A side. The one that I, in hindsight, enjoyed the most, um, it was it was the toughest thing I've ever done and it was the most stressful thing I've ever, I've ever done was, was running Bedell. And, I mean, at the end of the day, working with a really smart group of people and particularly in, when things are very, very bad and to see the grit or the depth of character that can and the positive outcomes that can occur when a bunch of people come together and, and work in the same direction, it, it was very fulfilling uh, in a way that the other jobs have. Yeah, it's very results-driven then, right? So it's me. that's why I like vacuuming because once you're done with it, you yes. have accomplished something, right? So. <laughs> well, a, a lot of our jobs, like uh, it, it, it's, it's shifting pieces of paper around. At the end of the day, you're not seeing something physical for your labor. And with Bedell, we saved the company. We saved 1,200 jobs. It was the biggest employer in the state of Amapa. It was the biggest economic contributor. So it was a pretty, you know, it was a pretty incredible thing what we did with a, with a very poor hand that we were dealt with. Yeah, no, and... Um Exactly. So, so they have, your 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 CV or bio on the website actually says you have a broad broad understanding of how dynamic or how the dynamic mining sector functions at all points in the cycle. I think that's a really interesting statement because I'm trying to figure out where we are at in the cycle right now. Like I uh, like I'm still trying to figure yes. that one out. Okay. Like today is more of an update again, so the mood is more positive. Last week, like eh, mixed feelings. The week before, I was down. Right. Like, and the sector didn't know what was happening. What are we doing right now? Where where are we at? Should we be euphoric? Should we be pessimistic? Should we just wait and see? Like, what's your what's your take on that? Where are we? I I don't think you should ever be euphoric, um, because euphoria results in in over emotional thinking, and then probably not the best risk taking behavior. I think you have to be cautious. Looking, I mean, let's look back two years ago. Who would have thought that we would be bemoaning gold? That's 
$1,800, right? So we have to be somewhat cautious in the context of the day-to-day movements of the gold price or any commodity price versus taking a long-term view. So, I mean, I'm feeling very positive about gold. It's, it's, it's the commodity I understand the best because I suppose I spent a large portion of my career looking at, well, gold assets and also um, uh, copper assets and, and uranium assets. So for me, uh, gold is, yeah, it's, it's and given what's going on in the world with the money printing, with everything else that's percolating around, I feel like we're in a positive environment for gold. I think you have to be somewhat cautious about stock selection. I mean, ultimately, good projects and high-quality management teams will bear the test of time. And so you know, don't get too greedy is is always good advice. Um, I would say the, the most important lesson I've learned over the last 25 years is to sell. And so, for example, in 2015, it was when everybody was suicidal at the end of 2015, I bought a lot of gold stocks. And for the first time I could because I'd resigned from Sun Valley. And I didn't know that gold was going to do what it did the next year, but I just felt that at some point in the time, in the next three years, it would go up. And then it went crazy in the first six months of 2016, I was out of everything. And so for me, it's just kind of being aware of the cycles. And I feel like this is a little bit different. Um, I'm constantly taking money off the table and also looking for, for new ideas. Look, looking for new ideas and extracting value, I think. Yes, extracting value means one taking money off the table, but also extracting value, like finding value first, right? So it's like one one question I have there as a follow up, and I felt like in 2015 and 2016 it was super easy to pick takeover targets. Right now, I have a really hard time predicting who might be the next target. There's a couple of companies on the cusp. There's the obvious ones, but then again, like it doesn't feel like there's like. 15 20 companies back then in 16 i was writing a newsletter and i think our hit rate was fairly good it was like lakeshore gold and then uh, it was a new market gold they were like really easy to predict that there was something that's going to happen right uh doesn't feel like it right now right yeah normally m a goes crazy in the euphoric part of the cycle and so if you remember when things peaked really back in you know 2010 2011 2012 was the equity peak uh, everybody went crazy and you see companies tend to be rather sheep-like in their behavior. If one does it, I think what happens is a lot of border management teams go, hang on a minute, so-and-so did that. We want to do that too. And so there's a lot of uh, behavior begetting the same behavior. Because most large company present CEOs lost their jobs because of fairly value destruction uh, M&A, I think there's a lot of caution about that now. And so I think companies are unwilling to take on risk. Uh, I think that companies will only acquire something in a country where they're already in. So, and that's part of the risk bucket. You know, we've seen very, very, we've seen mergers uh, like for like with production, low risk. And just on the subject of sheep like behavior, the Australians did it. You saw one Australian go outside of Australia and buy an asset, and suddenly all of them did. And there was this flurry of MA where essentially every producer except Regis went out and did MA. And so, and so those assets, but they were all kind of lower risk produ- production assets. And at the moment, you have some very interesting development assets out there, but I don't think we're in the part of the cycle yet. I think prices need to be higher. I think there needs to be um, a bunch of M&A that begets that M&A frenzy. Uh, I was surprised, actually, at the Equinox Premier one. I That wasn't an obvious one to me. Um, 
so you know there is there is there is some M&A in the development space but we're not seeing very much of it yet. Yeah, like companies like Sabina Gold, Ascot Gold, for example, like Top Ahead, like they, they are ripe for a takeout, but it doesn't feel like imminent, right? Like, Well, yeah, I mean, sorry, I interrupted you and I'm a terrible interrupter. All good. So no, no, it's like, I want you to actually do that because like, like I, I don't see it. It doesn't feel like 2015, 2016, where it was easy to predict those companies. Like, as I said before, it was Avenal Gold. It was Kirkland, uh, New Market and all these guys, like you can actually read that in our newsletter, but it's like, it doesn't feel like that. Uh, yeah, I think I think the easy, like you said, the kind of the easy low-hanging fruit is gone. So Sabina Gold and Silver, Bruce McLeod has done an absolutely fantastic job with the company, but it's not the easiest asset. And I suppose people would be looking to TMAC and going, well, that was kind of a shit show. Uh and you know, very, very challenging location-wise, etc. So I, I think there'll be caution about that. Obviously, the natural acquirer would be Agnico. Uh, but what I think what you have to expect and what absolutely will be going on from speaking to bankers is everybody's looking at everybody else. Absolutely. Uh, there's lots of tie kicking. I think one of the reasons that you haven't seen m and it's, it's the travel. It's just so difficult to go and see assets. Yeah. And a lot of CEOs... You have to be pretty cautious if you're going to send your people and they get sick and you know potentially die and you could be culpable. So there's that health question as well. So I'm not sure that we're going to see M&A until the world opens up again in any meaningful way. You mentioned ESG before. And, and one thing that factors into ESG for, for banks and funds as well is diversification in terms of asset base, asset location, right? And uh, I mentioned yeah. that in another interview, but top of mind again, like Torix Gold, for example, is in Guerrero, Mexico, maybe not the most ideal location, or even a mid-tier producer, K92, just in Papua New Guinea, uh, but 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 yeah. very good valuation. Um, like, what do you see happening that? Are they being more forced to do a transaction? I think it's pretty difficult. I think mid-tiers and majors, the evolution of ESG that we've seen and the power that the self-appointed ESG auditors have to opine on your ESG qualifications and then funds are getting judged on their own ESG qualifications. And so you have this incredible knock-on effect and I don't think any of us thought about this and I actually think it's pretty dangerous because you're kind of getting trapped into this cycle of judgment in, in a little bit like you are with the proxy advisors with ISS and Glass-Lewis and those guys aren't truly independent. I mean, they're owned by hedge funds. They're money-making machines. So I think most mid-tier companies will, they're not going to go into jurisdictions where they could be criti criticised from an ESG perspective. I think some of that high risk side of things yeah, so a K two, I think maybe a K two has to acquire, yeah. grow itself rather. That, than sorry, that that was actually what I meant with a question, right? Will they have to buy to stay actually eligible? Let's say for a BlackRock ESG fund or so to actually be investable. I don't know. I mean, it's a good question to ask BlackRock. So the thing with P and G that everybody forgets about is is it's an inc a very high rainfall country it's very topographic so they allow riverine tailings disposal and riverine waste disposal and deep sea tailings disposal so most um esg auditors would just that would get the no box you know the biggest no possible and it's really easy to sit and pass judgment on a country if you're i mean png is a very poor country it's very natural resource rich it's got topographical geographical challenges so they allow things to occur that would not be permitted pretty much anywhere else in the world so i think sometimes 
you know, everyone's focused on the E side of ESG, but there's a social angle as well. And so, yes, you might be an environmental impact, but if the social impact outweighs that in terms of job creation, in terms of healthcare, in terms of education, in terms of kind of net economic impact to a country, I think I think us in rich countries and in the West have to be very cautious about passing judgment and having these hard and fast rules. Yeah. Let's circle back to creating value and extracting value from this sector, right? Um, sure. And, and everybody talks bad about mining, it feels like, right? And also in their interviews, we always try, find, try to find things where we can criticize. Like, what are we actually doing well? Like, why is actually the mining sector something you would invest in? Oh, I love this sector. Um, it's It's... You know, there's there's challenging parts of it. There's definitely dodgy characters, and I think we know. And and those dodgy characters tend to proliferate in times like this, when any every man and his dog is is now changed from being a cannabis company to a gold company or to whatever the new flavor of the month commodity is. Um, I, I actually think our sector has been a global leader, for example, on ESG. We've just been very, very reticent about talking about it. I think any of us that are in mining that have interacted with people who aren't in mining and when you get the reaction of someone, an average person on the street, when they say, what, what do you do? And you say, I'm in mining and they, oh, are you okay with that? So we've done a very poor job about educating the world that resources you know, our quality of life is linked to resource extraction. And so I actually think we've done a lot of things very well. Um, and I think that this industry, uh, it's, 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 it's criticised enormously from the outside. And, and uh, we might have lost Nikki there for a second. Hold on, Nikki. We we lost you there. Uh oh. Petition Oh, you're back. Okay, there you are. Okay, sorry. Just repeat your last couple sentences. There was a bit of a Skype glitch. Oh, I said what I would like to see is our industry being a lot more positive and proactive about the good things that it's done. I mean, we we were global leaders in ESG before ESG was a thing. I mean, you had to be. Um, you're going into someone else's country and into someone else's community. You have to develop all of those skill sets. Yeah. And uh, I drifted off with my last question, but I really want to talk to extracting value from, from this cycle right now as an investor, of course. Like, wh where right. are you investing right now? Where do you actually see value being created? And you've got a broad range of expertise in long commodities. It doesn't have to be gold, but it also like cycle stage of companies, right? Yeah, I'm actually all over the place. I'm, I'm invested in um, good development stories. Uh, because I do think it, people always think, say, this time is different. It is never different. So M&A will have its day again. Uh, so I'm invested in, and no single asset company really should exist in perpetuity. So I, I'm invested in single asset development stories and there's a few single asset producers that we can think of that are probably likely take over, likely take over targets. Uh, I... I play the optionality ones because they talk up and, you know, the vistas, et cetera, up and down because they just, you know, you, you can never hold them long term, but they tend to talk up and down. Uh, so, and then I own producers and I own one of the streamers. So I, I the, the, the sector that I don't invest in is very early stage juniors. 
And maybe it's because I'm a geologist and actually understand the risk. The risk is, is it's way too high. So uh, for me, the ones that I would invest in are once they've got some drill results. And so you can kind of understand and draw a geological picture. So I think you can see value in every sector of the space. You just have to do some work. And I think sometimes lots of people are reluctant to do the to do the work. So, again, it's probably buyer beware. I mean, I wouldn't be an advocate of buying something because your mate says, oi, I like this, you should go and buy it. <laughs> <laughs> like Bitcoin or all the other coins, right? That's so, right. Um, no, but uh, like you you are a geologist, right? So, and discovery yep. is like, you know, we've been thinking about this as well in, in a group chat as well. Like, are there, what was the last big discovery? Like, are we looking for the wrong deposits? Like, and we all know it's been getting harder to find deposits. They are not right at surface anymore. Most of gold deposits are undercover. Like, but discovery wise, we haven't seen much. Like last year, like I'm still scratching my head. Like, what have we seen? I think uh, there's two reasons. There's been, I think there's been a real structural shift in how exploration has occurred over the last 20 years. So when I left my undergraduate degree in 1993 uh, and then I went on to do a PhD and in that time it, it shifted. There was uh, in 1993 all the large companies had think tank groups and they did multi, they did terrain scale exploration with a five-year timeline, you know, really back to basics and a real commitment, um, had think tank groups with a bunch of smart people. It was where you could go and get a job with a PhD and not have to become an academic. So that ended. And so what's happened is the majors have outsourced the exploration to the juniors, but juniors can't do five-year terrain scale exploration. The market won't respond to it. The market responds, as we all know, to drill results. So you're kind of forced to either go back to the same piece of ground and maybe twin a hole, get some excitement, you know, ideally, and sometimes that works out, mostly it doesn't. And so I think there's been this structural shift about how exploration has been done. And with large companies, it's the first thing that gets cut. And so you might be building up traction with exploration and it gets cut. And so, you know, we did see a spate of discoveries in the 2000s, for example, in Australia, but that was leveraging off all of this work that had been done by the Western Minings and the CRAs, et cetera. So, and you're right, the, the, the sticking out of the ground, easy stuff has been found in all likelihood. Uh, so it will get tougher and tougher, but it's a high risk, high cost business. Yeah, I was just thinking about discovery of the year 2020 is like, I don't like nothing really just comes right to mind, right? Like there are a couple of like nice finds and like geological, ge ge geologically interesting targets. I love that definition, by the way. Like it sounds like you hit a duster and it's like, oh yeah, we got, we gained a lot of information. Right? Yeah, <laughs> but nothing comes it was, to it was, mind. It was, then, a right? so, it was a technical success. <laughs> exactly, those are my favorite press releases. But uh, like, nothing really comes to mind there, right? And uh, how do we change that? Like, are we looking for the wrong deposit types? Are we looking for the wrong? Are we looking at the wrong rocks? Uh, no, I don't think so. I mean, I think there's juniors out there that are doing very good work. Like you've got some in BC. Um, you've had some smart geos add value in Quebec with um, a story. It was probably really a 2019 story. I think we're doing uh, we're doing reasonable work with the tools that we have, and in, in, in really in the context of the market as well. And so ultimately, exploration is a function of capital, and it takes a number of years to build up a head of steam. So if you're going to do exploration properly, 
you, know, you, you do the boring, what the market considers to be boring, but the step-by-step low-cost stuff first to de-risk that very, very high-cost information gathering exercise, which is the drill bit. I, I, I think you know, we've got better remote sensing techniques. We've, uh, I think countries could learn from each other. I think, as, I think Canada probably doesn't do enough oriented drilling. Uh, whereas Australia, as a matter of course, does, and I'm somewhat biased as a structural geologist. But if you're not orienting your core, it's like mapping without a compass. So it's this huge amount of information that you're not gathering. So I think maybe things like that need to change. Kind of this acceptance. I've I've seen. I sat on a board of one company where the head geo was like, "No, nah, we never. We don't have to ever drill an oriented core hole," and never did. It was crazy. Interesting. Yeah, lack of like, and you you think it's twenty twenty one? Everybody's got the internet. Knowledge should almost be universal, the same, right? But it's as as you're saying, there are massive gaps still. Yeah, and people get trapped. And geologists are really guilty of this. Like, you know, geology is an iterative science, and it's it's an inexact science. So the best geologists are the ones that take pieces of information and are willing to adapt and evolve their thesis with new pieces of information, and don't kind they don't go they don't try and twist the rocks to fit a preconceived idea. And that's why you'll see a company come in after company XYZ and make a discovery where the previous company didn't. And so it's just being willing to take information it's also acknowledging when to walk away and maybe we don't do that enough that is probably a good one yeah willing to walk away because beating that dead horse we've seen that way too many times i think we have and then we see recycling as well so i'm really like recycling of projects and i've been in the industry for 10 years and if i start to recognize projects i've seen before that's problematic yeah i've seen yeah i'm seeing projects third third time fourth time now Yeah. yeah And I'm not a geo. And if I start to recognize projects and areas and there's like, wait a second, I've looked at this before. Like, <laughs> like this come across, like, no. <laughs> right. Exactly. So that's. Has it gotten any better? No. <laughs> no, it hasn't changed. Right. So and that's why, of course, as you said, like this sector and this like $1,800 gold environment, of course, attracts the, those types of projects again, unfortunately. So it's true. Yeah. Um, to sort of wrap this up as well, like give us a bit of an outlook, right? You like uh, coming back to the whole theme of extracting value. Like, what do you see now happening in the next six to twelve months, maybe in our sector? I I would say I think we're underestimating how long COVID is going to impact things. So I think you need to be somewhat cautious. Supply chains are being impacted. Uh, I think I'd be focused on those companies that have assets where you've got embedded in-country skill sets. So Canada, um, Brazil is actually a really good one because you don't have to import skilled labour. West Africa, I would think, would be a challenge for uh, a lot of people because of the quarantine coming in and then the quarantine going back to their country of origin and that becomes very hard to manage and even in Australia when you speak to some operating companies in WA, all the good mill reliners teams a lot of them live in Queensland and they weren't able to come in and reline mills because there was intra-border shutdowns so but I think it's a really good time to be looking at what you want to own uh so no long time I'm long term I'm very positive I would put a caveat and say you know obviously nobody can pick the price but given what's going on in the world given the lack of discoveries given the timelines to production that at some point investors will demand growth again. They always do. And and when they do, uh, 
you'll you'll see the normalized MA because you you'll have you'll have you have an inelastic response to price pressure. You cannot bring on a mine when mine in, in a heartbeat. It, the average timeline now from discovery to production, it's 15 years. So it's 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 tough. Mining's tough. And so it is it is somewhat of a scarcer commodity. Yeah, we've seen BMO predict actually cash flow for the top 10 gold producers to reach around $91 billion until 2024, right? So somewhere that money has to go somewhere. Of course, it will be buybacks yeah. and dividends and all of that good stuff, but they will be investing. They can't yes. have their production decline in five years' time. They exactly. just cannot afford that, right? And when you look at most of the large companies post-20, when, when I was at uh, Sun Valley, we did a lot of work on this and we're pretty accurate. We did this back in 2014 and we said, by the time you hit 2022, <coughs> excuse me, supply starts to fall off a cliff without a lot of new builds. Yeah. So we're, we're heading in a direction where you need more new mines to come on and new discoveries. Perfect. Yeah. Nikki, I really, really appreciate you joining us. Where, where can investors but, and also company executives find more about Coupel? Because I think you provide really important work to the sector. Where do they find more info about you? Oh well, I have a website, uh, which my sister, which my sister did. Uh, so uh, thank you, Kirsty. Uh, just CoupelAdvisory dot com. Fantastic. And yeah. And you're on LinkedIn. Nice. You're not on Twitter. Like I was, like I was hoping to see you on there. I was actually going to ask. I, I was actually going to open with an icebreaker, and I held it back. And I was going to ask you, are you the angry geologist? No, I'm still, not. The I'm still angry trying geologist. to find him or her. Like still, still working I, on that. I. <laughs> I'm not the angry geologist. Uh, no, I'm not on any social media except LinkedIn. Uh, it just, I feel like, um, yeah, who, who wants to listen to my inane murmurings would be my takeaway on that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'd love to. I'd love to hear more from you, actually. You, you have really important insights and different perspectives as well. And you, you, as you said, you've, you've traveled the world. You've seen pretty much every commodity. You've done every other, every job in mining pretty much. So that's why we want to hear from you. Come on, set up oh. a link, set up a Twitter account. We want to hear from you. <laughs> awesome. Nikki, really appreciate <laughs> you, you for... joining us. It was great. It was great talking to you and to everybody else. Thanks for watching. Thanks for tuning in. And by the way, I held back company-specific questions like because you're a director of a couple of companies, but uh, I'm sure we can get those answered separately and I'll forward them to you and we'll get those answered. Yeah. So, Because I don't yeah. think that was a topic of a conversation. We would have drifted off. So, yes. And, uh, yes. So we'll get those answered. Thanks for watching. Thanks for tuning in. Make sure to subscribe, follow our YouTube channel, follow us on Twitter, hit the little bell icon. That way you get notified when we go live. We do all our interviews live, really important to us. So make sure to follow us there and don't miss one. Thanks so much.